Hello, I'm Carl Helliker and welcome to Book Chat. Today joining us is Dr. Brian Simon, the author of this absolutely fascinating study, Boardwalk of Dreams, Atlantic City and the Fate of Urban America. And it's published by our good friends at Oxford University Press. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, interesting title for a fascinating book, Boardwalk of Dreams. To whose dreams does the title refer? Dreams refers in many ways to the to people coming to Atlantic City and what they bring with them and why they want to come. And, and early in the book, I talk about that Atlantic City is kind of a, a dream factory in some ways that, that people who, and I'm talking here about somewhere between 1920 and 1960, the people who are just making it in America come to Atlantic City to show that they've made it. But, but dreams also supposed to have a, a kind of bitter connotation to it, to those dreams that are broken there and the dreams of African-Americans who are excluded and also the dreams of those who want to rebuild the city. So it's supposed to sort of play in both ways. Yeah, and, and race itself was a very prominent focus of your book. And uh, one individual who uh, maybe serves sort of as a metaphor for uh, the oppression that the African-Americans suffered was this fellow John Sayles. Well, can you tell us a little about John Sayles? It, it's Jordan Sayles. Jordan, um, I'm sorry. Um, he didn't go on to become a filmmaker. Um, <laughs> okay, that's right. But Jordan Sayles, um, and as the, the cover of the book shows, pushed the rolling chairs down the boardwalk. And one of the things I was trying to say in the book is that Atlantic City in its early days, its heydays, was segregated. And, and that alone didn't make Atlantic City unique. I mean, most American cities at that time were segregated, but that that segregation was absolutely a kind of precondition for its success, that whites, often immigrants, came to Atlantic City to be waited on by African-Americans. And nothing serves that better than the image of the rowing chair. And these were sort of rickshaw-like um, two, three-passenger wicker chairs that um, white people had all dressed up sat in and were pushed down the boardwalk by African-Americans like Jordan Sales. And, and I thought in many ways that was the perfect sort of metaphor for Atlantic City during its heyday, that, that this sort of showing off, but also a kind of racial showing off. Mm -hmm. And Sales as the pusher um, becomes the person who provides that, but also I would try and tell his story as well behind the scenes. Sort of almost uh, like a Ralph Ellison, the Invisible Man type. Uh. Well, very. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was I was thinking about that and and, and minstrelsy and all the various mm -hmm. ways in which race plays into American culture. And Atlantic City was really good at putting that on display. Right. Uh, you say Atlantic City was the first American city built from scratch and devoted to entertainment. Can you please elaborate on that a little? Well, Atlantic City. Um, it, this is Atlantic City's 150th um, anniversary, and it was the first city built from the very beginning with no other purpose. There was no other purpose for Atlantic City other than to bring people in to have fun for leisure. And mm -hmm. Cape May, Newport, places like that, he had earlier ties as fishing places and, and sort of industrial past, but Atlantic City was developed for no other reason 150 years ago than to entertain people. And in that way, I think it really is the first city built from scratch simply to sort of entertain. And, and is that primarily the entertainment component uh, in the early years of Atlantic City, which attracted people there mostly? Well, it was a kind of distinct entertainment that attracted them. People came to Atlantic City in the early years um, as a health resort. The notion was that Atlantic City, um, the sea, the sea air, 
Um, they even advertise ozone as a healthy benefit, um, that people would come to Atlantic City and, and breathing the sea air, these cooler temperatures would get them away from the kind of noxious fumes of the city and revitalize them. So in that sense, it was more health resort at first. And then about around the turn of the century, that, that health component sort of fades as it becomes a kind of more entertainment capital in the way we would know about it today. And, and, and much of what would become famous about Atlantic City is built and the, it, the boardwalk gets built, the amusement piers get built, mm -hmm. the rides come, the fantastic hotels, all of that is sort of built in the 1880s as the health function sort of recedes and the entertainment function sort of is ratcheted up somewhat. Yeah, uh, although you already alluded to it, but I thought maybe you could focus on it a little more because it was such an important part of your book when you say that Atlantic City, unlike American cities, was not about democracy but exclusion. Uh, what exactly do you mean by this and who was excluded? Well, um, Atlantic City often, I mean, in its, in its promotional literature would say that, that the boardwalk itself was America's main street and, and that they, that it was a great place because it was democratic, that, that the rich rubbed elbows with the middle. And that was sort of true, but it wasn't true. Um, and that illusion of democracy is important to Atlantic City because um, both the police and local custom kept African-Americans off the boardwalk, except in servile positions. And local custom and even law dictated that you had to get dressed up to walk on the boardwalk. So those who couldn't afford to get dressed up enough were excluded as well. Mm -hmm. And so it created, I think in some ways like Disneyland and other places, the illusion of democracy that everyone's included, but it used various legal and extra legal mechanisms to exclude. And it also called attention to that exclusion. The fact that you could go represented that you were someone better than the people who couldn't go. And, and those things needed to happen at once, the, the sort of illusion of inclusion with okay. the actuality of exclusion. Exclusion, sure. Uh, then along came the 1960s and we have the whole civil rights movement and that radically did change the social structure of Atlantic City. Yeah, I mean, Atlantic City, like a lot of Northern cities and a lot of Southern cities, again, was essentially um, segregated. Um, one person told me it was a Jim Crow town. Um, but by the 1960s, there's a real attack in Atlantic City, like other places, on these segregated institutions. And for a moment, public space, the boardwalk, the movie theaters, which had been segregated before, the swimming pools were integrated. And the response of the masses of people in Atlantic City that had been coming in the past was to flee. And so Atlantic City suffers in many ways like the urban centers of the rest of America from white flight, but it doesn't in two ways. It, it suffers from white flight both of tourists, but also of residents, leaving the city um, bereft of tax revenues, of a steady stream of well-heeled visitors and um, banks seeing that the city had become um, more and more um, both inhabited in its residential and resort areas by African-Americans, define that by nature as places not to invest in. So investment dries up and the city begins to crumble. Right, and then of course, uh maybe another metaphor, the 1964 Democratic Convention, which was held in Atlantic City and ended up, I think, shattering a lot of uh, aspirations of African-Americans at the time, too. Yeah, it's an interesting moment. I mean, the, the convention um, is brought there by a Republican politician, um, but who is first and foremost an Atlantic City politician. And he brings it there thinking it's going to, you know, jumpstart the city and bring in a lot of money. And it turns out to be an absolute disaster for Atlantic City. Um, what happened was um, 
that the, the results of the convention were a foregone conclusion. Johnson was going to win the nomination, so journalists had nothing else to do but to poke around Atlantic City, and what they found was a city that was rotting. And so rather, so what they did was send home stories about a rotting city. And rather than getting the good press that they hoped, they got really bad press. And so the convention itself didn't do very well for the city. But underneath that, I think what you're referring to was the challenge to the Democratic Party's racial mm -hmm. politics happens at the very moment right. that Atlantic City is, in a sense, fighting its own battles against integration, and neither were satisfied. Neither the African-Americans who came to the convention didn't get what they wanted, and, and Atlantic City African-Americans who got integration, but at the moment they got integration, capital leaves the city. I mean, it, you know, they weren't allowed to go to movie theaters for a long time. At the moment that the movie theaters open up, That's they a, begin to molder. We were talking about um, the uh, civil rights movement and the uh, impact of segregation in Atlantic City. But you go on also to say uh, that not only in Atlantic City, but uh, throughout the, the Jersey Shore, urbanism during the last 30 years was also based on exclusion. Can you give us uh, some other examples? Well, other towns maybe. Or other towns, I mean, at least informally, right? Okay. I mean, everyone, every town has a niche. Right. And, you know, Cape May has a certain group of people come in Stone Harbor. Avalon have a certain group of people come in. And other people aren't welcome there. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's a relatively small African American community in Avalon and, and Atlantic City. In a sense, part of what it symbolized was urbanism, and part of what urbanism's, urbanism's come to symbolize is its diversity, its sort of rotten core. And what happened in the last 30 years is, while well, these smaller shore towns have thrived, um, I mean, property values. Just look at the Sunday. Inquire, I mean, are just soared in the, those towns in Atlantic City. At least parts that aren't zoned for gambling have stagnated and fallen. So the, the sense of wanting to spend your resort time in an urban kind of beach setting, which helped Asbury Park in Atlantic City for a long time, mm -hmm. I mean, clearly died 30 years ago. That, that the appeal of the kind of juxtaposition between nature, the ocean, and the urbanity of the kind of boardwalk frontage that was, was a real appeal to Atlantic City, that sort of fell apart to a kind of more pastoral, small town, kind of beach men, beach, beachy kind of scene, at least where the big money was. Fine. Uh, and then you do make some very interesting points too, along and tied in with the whole concept of integration and desegregation, uh, some co comparisons and contrasts between Atlantic City and Disneyland. Can you talk about uh, the rise of Disneyland and how that came about and uh, how it sort of was the inheritor of Atlantic City in some respects? Yeah, I mean, I write in the book, and I think it's true, the day Disneyland opened Atlantic City was the past. And Disney came up with a new form of producing entertainment. And, but Disney was very deliberate about that. Um, he located the original Disneyland in Anaheim. Well, that wasn't an accident and it wasn't just cheap land. There was no public transportation there. Um, Disney made the ticket prices incredibly high at the time. Disney refused to hire African-Americans till the 1960s. Um, Disney and the um, people who worked there would not let same-sex couples um, hold hands or dance together. And what Disney was trying to do was to create a kind of vision of a small town in many mm -hmm. ways as a response to the fears of the urban, right? To make sure no one thought they were in an urban space when they went in there. 
and the ticket prices and the location were deliberately put in place to exclude people. I mean, Disney was really clear about that. Well, by using that sort of ex-urban location mm-hmm. away from the city, Disney was able to get the crowd he wanted. Atlantic City couldn't move from the city. It, mm-hmm. I mean, it couldn't physically remove itself from where right. it was. And its inability to exclude, put a, I mean, Disney literally has a gate up around it, made it harder and harder in a post-civil rights America to create the same kind of crowd it had before based upon the sort of illusion of democracy with inclusion undergirding it. Disney rediscovered that and, and sort of perfected it for a kind of suburban post-civil rights America, I think. Yeah, interesting. And, uh, you know, leading from there, you may make a, an interesting conclusion. In your book, you say that uh, since Atlantic City has always always thrived on exclusion, remedies must come from the future and not the past. Do you see any remedies that could help the city of Atlantic City? Well, the first thing I, I think, Atlantic City has been long addicted um, on kind of quick fixes. And there is no quick fix to, to the sort of problems that beset American cities. I mean, gambling is a quick fix, a baseball stadium in the middle of the city, an aquarium. Those quick fixes aren't going to work. What we have to address is the initial cause of the decline itself, and that is the unwillingness of many people to be in really diverse spaces. W- without that, you, you, you can't address this sort of problem. So I, I put that right at the, at the front. I mean, it right. has, um, but in the long term, I think the, the solution for Atlantic City is to rediscover some parts of its past that were oriented in the outdoors, um, oriented around the boardwalk, oriented around rides, oriented around kind of the relationship between the boardwalk and other parts of the city. And gambling hasn't done that. Gambling has created essentially 12 kind of rocket ships that land on the moon. And what they do is try and keep people inside. Mm-hmm. In order for Atlantic City to sort of find itself and to have some trickle down from the gambling windfall, it's going to have to rediscover its outdoor spaces and its city streets. My fear is, is that those streets are already have been sort of battered for so long that they're immediate indicators to people that they're unsafe. Um, and they won't go on them. And so Atlantic City has this sort of catch-22 of how to sort of blend gambling and rebuild the city. And so far, it's done mostly, most of the money has been invested in making sure the gambling industry succeeds and the city um, has been left to sort of rot. Fine. Interesting. Uh, let's bounce back a little more sure. to the history of Atlantic City. Uh, the Boardwalk and Steel Pier, uh, when were they built and for whom were they built? Um, well, the Boardwalk gets started pretty soon after... Um, the city's founded and um, it was basically, there was a bunch of briars and thickets and it was hard to get to the beach. And so they cut them out and put boards um, along the beach so that people could get get to the um, ocean and enjoy the ocean. And they became popular as walkways themselves. And over about a 20 or 30 year period between the late 1850s and um, the 1880s, they tried a bunch of different ways to do it until they finally got something that looks like the boardwalk we know today, which was something running parallel to the ocean, raised up and a, a kind of walkway. And so Steel Pier is is started around the same time. I mean, you have to have the boardwalk first and then Steel Pier is built um, outside of it, but it started, you know, in the um, sometime around the turn of the century after that, and really comes into its own in the 30s and 40s. And um, Amos and Andy um, do a show there in, in, I guess, the late 30s in front of something like 57,000 people show up on the pier one day is the real. And, and then it was also 
a really important site for big band music. Um, so if you think of Benny Goodman in the 30s into sort of Glenn Miller, it was a very important, the line goes, no big band was a big band until they played Steel Pier. Brian, uh, we were starting to talk a little bit about the uh, Atlantic City as an entertainment center uh, during the uh, 30s and 40s and 50s. Can you tell us a little bit about a Club Harlem? Yeah, the Club Harlem was on um, the African-American side of town. Um, well, it's easy to talk about properties in Atlantic City because they're monopoly. Um, so Atlantic Avenue is the main street in town, the main co commercial street. And on um, the ocean side is the white side of town. And on the bay side is the African-American side of town. And the Club Harlem was just on the African-American side of town. And it was um, a place where white tourists went slumming. Um, and that, and they would go there to hear and see largely African American acts, and it would usually start with um, maybe a kind of raunchy comedian, and then maybe a sort of exotic dance with um, scantily clad African American women dancing to sort of Ellington's jungle music. Well, not as good as Ellington, but jungle music, and then it would end with the kind of big, the biggest stars in kind of the African American circuit, um, Slappy White. Um, Sammy Davis played there just a little bit, but um, up into like Sam Cooke would play there when it, it mm -hmm. closed in the 1960s. And the interesting thing about it is the Club Harlem would stay open until about three or four in the morning. You could gamble in the back of it. Um, there were a lot of illegal casinos in Atlantic City. And then at six o'clock in the morning, it would open up again for breakfast shows. And the breakfast shows would be a largely all African American audience, um, people who worked in town. And the music would go from jungle music maybe to, to Bob. Or, um, and it would be a much looser scene, but, um, and then about nine, the club Harlem would close, clean up and start over again, you know, about six o'clock the, the next day. Um, but it was much like the Cotton Club in New York. I mean, it was sort of Atlantic City's version of the Cotton Club. And it lasted actually um, up until right before gambling came when um, there was a shootout there, Philadelphia drug dealers, which pretty much did it in four people were killed in a, in a kind of pretty nasty shootout. Mm -hmm. which pretty much did the club hard on in. Uh, a notable feature of your book, which you don't find in a, a lot of uh, books written by uh, scholarly historians, <laughs> is that it's very, very readable and it includes a, a large number of interviews. How did you find the people to interview and uh, basically how long did it take you to write this book? Um, well, thanks first. And um, it took me five years from pretty much beginning to end. Um, I know because my son's five years old. So mm -hmm. I sort of started when he was born and um, he just turned five. The interviews, um, some were existing interviews. The interview with Jordan Sales, there was a project done in 1978 by mm -hmm. a librarian in Atlantic City. And um, the other interviews, I, I would just ask around. Um, and I did two other things that sort of helped. I put um, an ad out in a local synagogue newsletter, and I got a lot of people from that. That's and um, I put an ad out in the Philadelphia Gay News, because um, one of the components of the book is to talk about um, gay life in Atlantic City. And I got a lot of responses from that. And, and um, and then networks just sort of built. Um, one person I would talk to would recommend me to someone else. And the other thing I did was, while I was reading the newspaper, I would sit in the library with um, the phone and I would look up people who I found, who I felt were telling me interesting stories in the phone book and call them and see if they would talk to me. Right. Uh, just, to, you know, it makes the book very, very interesting and uh, very, very good and something I definitely would recommend to everybody who wants a good study of Atlantic City. Thanks. Um, Atlantic City and the movie theaters too played a very important role in, in entertainment and they sort of uh, mirrored race relations during the golden age of the movies during the 1950s. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, Atlantic City um, in 1955 or so had somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 movie seats. It had several theaters with 3,000 or more movie seats. And these were red velvet seats with big atmospheric ceilings, um, marble sinks. I mean, they were the, the, the kind of really grand movie theaters of the past. And um, they slowly closed um, through the 50s and 60s in part as the number of people coming to Atlantic City um, declined. And then as integration hit the city and the city's the movie theaters couldn't segregate anymore, like movie theaters in downtowns everywhere, they closed. And what they were replaced by was initially a drive-in and then suburban sort of drive-up movie theaters. And so I used the movie theater for all of its grandeur as a way to talk about what pe the costs of people's unwillingness to be in integrated spaces. Because I don't know about you, but I would much rather see a movie on a big screen and on yeah. a posh seat than one of these like, you know, 28 plexes in, in, a, in a strip mall. And so I think that speaks to our how desperately we want to control the spaces we're in. We're willing to give up all of that for this kind of cookie cutter experience. And so I used the movie theater as a way to talk about um, both the sort of entertainment past and, and some of the consequences of um, the people's fierce commitment to remain in, 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 in exclusive spaces. And so we come up to the mid-70s and we see the emergence of the casinos. What uh, conditions led to the uh, emergence of the casinos? Well, one man told me a joke um, that in 1976, the boardwalk was so empty that you could roll a bowling ball down and not hit anyone. I mean, by 1976, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate this too much because I think Atlantic City was having trouble attracting a steady stream of tourists, mm -hmm. was having trouble um, maintaining its sort of residential communities. And people couldn't keep their eyes off the bright lights of Las Vegas. And remember, at the time, the only place you could legally gamble in the United States was Las Vegas. There was no place east of the Mississippi you could gamble. And Atlantic City residents, and they talked people around the state into believing this was what would bring Atlantic City back. Um, whether it did is another question. I mean, since gambling's come, there is not a single movie theater in Atlantic City. Um, 35 million visitors a year, and an IMAX theater is going to open up in the next couple of weeks, but there's not a single movie theater. Um, there's not a single supermarket in Atlantic City. 200 restaurants have gone out of business. Um, a third of the population is gone. So is this a good model for urban renewal? Maybe not. Well, unfortunately, Bryant, we've run out of time and we still had some important issues to address. So I guess we're just going to have to rely on our readers to come in and read your book, Boardwalk of Dreams, Atlantic City and the Fate of Urban America. Dr. Bryant Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. This is Carl Hollicker and this is Book Chat.